five weeks after Israel declared independence, and in the midst of a war for existence against five Arab states, Israeli soldiers gathered on a beach in Tel Aviv to fight each other. Over a period of about 48 hours, 19 Israelis were killed in what was this close to a civil war. Those two days could have split the Jewish state apart and ended the whole thing right then and there. It was a fight over weapons, but it was really a bigger fight over leadership and power. It was probably Menachem Begin's finest hour. It also set up bad blood between the right and the left in Israel that persists to this day, and I feel like I say that a lot. Those early days, weeks, and years really set the stage for the decades to follow. So that's today's topic, Israel's almost civil war. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. All right, so to get to the Israeli almost civil war, we have to wrap up the story of Jerusalem from last episode. Since November of 1947, the Arabs had laid siege to the city, trapping some 100,000 Jews behind their lines. In late May of 1948, just a couple of weeks after Israel's independence, the Arab legion overran the old city's Jewish quarter, raising it to the ground and expelling all the Jews. The old city then fell under the authority of Transjordan, the country that we today call Jordan. It would take 19 years for Israel to take back the old city and for the Jews to be allowed to visit their holy sites there again. But even though the old city fell, the rest of the Jewish part of Jerusalem, the western half of the city, was still holding out against Arab attack. A precious few Israeli fighters had managed to get into the city and were desperately trying to mount a defense. One young German Jew, who had lost her parents in the Holocaust, had joined the Haganah as a teenager and was trained as a sniper, which, being four foot seven, it turns out she was surprisingly good at. Awakening in her barracks on the morning of her 20th birthday, a Jordanian artillery shell hit the building. Several of her friends were killed, and the shrapnel tore into her legs. She nearly bled to death, but was saved at the last minute. She survived the war, moved to the United States, and we know her today as Dr. Ruth, the famous sex therapist. She later said that she never actually killed anyone, but did lose her virginity on a haystack inside a barn. Meanwhile, Israeli forces were still trying to reach Jerusalem. I talked last time about Latrun, the hilltop fortress held by the Arabs that overlooked the road from the coast to Jerusalem. As long as the Arabs were blockading the road and holding Latrun, the Jews couldn't get into Jerusalem. Israel tried multiple times to seize Latrun, failing each time, costing hundreds of lives. But David Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister, was adamant that the road had to be taken at all costs. Jerusalem had to be saved. And in the midst of all this, Ben-Gurion officially established the nation's military force, Tzava HaHaganah LeYisrael, the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF. He pulled together the four major Jewish defense groups that existed before the state was declared. The Haganah, which was the main one and associated with the left. The Palmach, which was the special operations branch of the Haganah, its most elite fighters. The Irgun, led by Menachem Begin and associated with the right, and the Lehi, a small ultra-right-wing fringe terrorist group of not many fighters. Although the idea was to blend these groups together into one unified army, the reality is that each group kept some of its own units. 
So you had, for instance, an Irgun unit within the IDF structure, and that's going to become very important in a few minutes, so hold that thought. Casting about for somebody who could head up the overall Jerusalem front and lead the operation to seize the road and take the city, Ben-Gurion settled on an interesting character. Colonel Mickey Marcus. Mickey Marcus was a Jewish-American from Manhattan who went to West Point and had a distinguished career during World War II. He parachuted into France on D-Day, oversaw displaced persons camps after the war, toured the Dachau concentration camp, and attended the Nuremberg trials. In 1947, Ben-Gurion asked him to come help train the Haganah. And two days after the IDF was created, Ben-Gurion put Mickey Marcus in charge of the Jerusalem Front and gave him the rank of general. Thus, Mickey Marcus, American Jew, became the very first general in the Israeli Defense Forces. So it was Mickey Marcus who was in overall command of these disastrous attempts to at take Latrun. But then the Israelis had another idea. What if instead of trying to take the road from the Arabs, we just built our own. The Israelis called it the Burma Road, which they named after a famous supply road that was built by the British from Burma to China during the Second World War. The advantage of the Burma Road was that the Arabs couldn't see it from Latrun, so they couldn't hit it with artillery or from that far of a distance. The downside? It wasn't really a road. It was more like a dirt path, narrow, and in places very steep. At first, the Israelis drove their trucks as far as they could, unloaded the supplies onto mules, trekked miles throughout the night, reloaded them onto vehicles on the other side of the mountain, and slowly wound their way through the hills to Jerusalem. All the while under fire from the Arabs, who couldn't shoot much firepower but could send raiding parties and snipers. As May turned into June, the Israelis brought in bulldozers to widen the road and to make it like an actual road that you could, you know, drive on. A few more trucks started getting through, but in the steepest sections they had to be pushed and pulled by hand or shoved along by bulldozers. Every other truck would either break down or the road would break and have to be repaired. But slowly, very slowly, it started working. First a couple thousand pounds of supplies got through to Jewish Jerusalem, then several tons, then several dozen tons, and eventually scores of tons. Food, medicine, weapons, ammunition, and soldiers. It was like the Berlin airlift, without the air part. Or, wait, Berlin either. But, okay, you understand the reference. And just in time, too, because on June 11th, the United Nations brokered a truce between Israel and the Arabs. It was intended to last a month, but neither side had any real intention of observing its rules. The Arabs didn't want to stop fighting. Except for the old city, they had actually lost a lot of territory they had seized at the beginning of the war, and they were getting nervous. The Jewish half of Jerusalem remained in Israeli hands. And Israel, which in its first month of existence had lost over 1,200 soldiers and civilians, Israel saw this as an opportunity to consolidate their position and bring in more weapons. And here is going to come the problem. The United Nations truce prohibited Israel from bringing in any more fighters or weapons into the country. But just as it went into effect, a cargo ship set sail from Europe for Israel with a whole bunch of exactly those things on board. It was named the Altalena. It was a ship organized by the Irgun to bring 900 fighters and a lot of guns to Irgun forces in Israel. 
But by the time the ship had set sail, the Irgun had been absorbed into the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF. The agreement that Menachem Begin made with Ben-Gurion was that the Irgun would subordinate itself to the IDF's command, would turn over their weapons to the army, and would not acquire any more weapons for just themselves. The point, remember, was to create a unified military that would work together for the defense of Israel. Even though Menachem Begin was in charge of the Irgun, the preparations to sail the Altalena were kept so secret that even he didn't realize it was on its way to Israel and just in time to violate the truce. But Israel was desperate for weapons. In all of Israel at that moment, there were only some 1,500 rifles, and the ship carried 5,000. So when Ben-Gurion got word that the ship was on its way, he said, well, we can't allow it to come to Tel Aviv because that's just way too obvious, but we can't send it back either because we're desperate for those weapons. So let's unload it somewhere secret. Ben-Gurion and Begin agreed to unload the ship at a quiet, out-of-the-way beach north of Tel Aviv. Begin agreed that the 900 Irgun fighters on board would be absorbed into the IDF, but he disagreed about who should get the weapons. He wanted 20% of the guns to go to the Irgun forces fighting in Jerusalem, but then he wanted the rest to go to Irgun battalions within the IDF. And to this point, Ben-Gurion refused. The weapons, he insisted, were for the entire Israeli army, not just the Irgun parts of it and would be distributed how and where the army command determined. Now part of the problem was the long history of bad blood between the Haganah and the Irgun, which you heard a lot about in season two of this podcast. They didn't trust each other, and they didn't much like each other, especially at the top. On June 20th, the Altalena hit the beach at a place called Kafar Vitkin, and offloaded all the passengers and about half the weapons, under the watchful eyes of Menachem Begin and other Irgun fighters. But the situation was intolerable for Ben-Gurion, and he, backed by the Israeli government, conveyed an ultimatum to Begin. Either you obey the commands of the IDF and turn over the weapons, or the IDF will seize them from you forcefully. Begin didn't know what to do. He hesitated and he didn't respond. The IDF surrounded the Irgun on the beach. As night fell, somebody started shooting. It's hard to say who, because each side later accused the other side of firing first. As the Israeli army closed in on the beach, Begin jumped into a rowboat and paddled out to the Altalena, all the while under fire from the brand new Israeli navy. The Israeli navy, in one of its first actions in its history, was trying to sink a rowboat with the future prime minister of Israel in it. Let me tell you, they won't tell you that in Zionism history class. But back on the beach, Two IDF soldiers were killed, along with six Irgun fighters, and then the rest surrendered, and the IDF seized the weapons. Meanwhile, the Altalena made a run for Tel Aviv. Ben-Gurion's argument was this. A state cannot have a splintered army. There can only be one unified chain of command following orders of one person at the top, which in this case was him. The state must have a monopoly on the use of force. Now that there was an official Israeli army, all military action had to come under its authority and its authority alone. No separatism, no contradicting loyalties. The very soul of the state is at stake, he said. And look, he was correct. This is a fundamental feature of democracies or any well-run state. 
you can't have separate armies reporting to separate commanders. But conveniently, this viewpoint also aligned with Ben-Gurion's leadership style, which allowed for no opposition, especially in these critical first few moments of Israel's existence. It wasn't just that Menachem Begin and his right-wing supporters were against Ben-Gurion. For Ben-Gurion, opposing him meant opposing the viability of the state of Israel. As the historian Anita Shapira writes, Ben-Gurion identified totally with the state authority and treated his opponents as if they were plotting to harm the brand new independent entity. As numerous historians have pointed out, including Anita Shapira, the Altalena incident just wasn't that big of a deal. The fact that it technically violated the UN truce didn't bother Ben-Gurion. Neither Israel nor the Arabs made any effort to keep the truce, and it was neither the first nor the last time that Israelis smuggled in weapons that month. No, what it was was a political opportunity for Ben-Gurion. He thought that by seizing the weapons and making Begin and the Irgun look like separatists, he could crush the opposition and secure his hold on power as the central authority in Israel. This wasn't the only fight he picked with the army either. He also tried installing his own loyalist commanders, over the objections of his top officers, which pissed off the whole army. So what Ben-Gurion would do in these situations is make a mountain out of a molehill, escalate a huge fight to figure out who was against him and who was with him, and then, when his opposition gained the upper hand, he would threaten to resign as prime minister. This would freak everyone out. He had been in charge for so long, and this was such a critical moment mere weeks after declaring independence, that the idea of losing him was unbearable. So his opponents would back down, and he would emerge even stronger. It was ruthless, but it was also pretty smart politics. So we must have figured that he could pull the same trick with the Altalena, and it might have worked, even after the brief firefight on the beach at Kafar Vitkin. But now the Altalena was rolling up off the beach in Tel Aviv, right in the middle of the whole world watching. As the Altalena, with Menachem Begin on board, raced towards Tel Aviv, Ben-Gurion upped the ante, determined to stop the ship at all costs. He ordered the Israeli Air Force to bomb it, but couldn't find a pilot willing to do so. The Navy fired on the boat, but the Irgun fired back, and so the Navy retreated to a safe distance. The Altalena rolled up a couple hundred yards off the single most popular, busiest beach in Tel Aviv, in full view of everyone. The locals, the government, the United Nations, foreign journalists, IDF soldiers, and Irgun fighters. There's a famous picture of people standing on the promenade, watching the whole thing. I'll post it on my website in today's episode, jewodonow.com. Go check it out. Local Irgun fighters raced down to the beach to provide assistance, with the IDF hot on their heels. Israel's government authorized Ben-Gurion to order the IDF to fire on the boat, but again, he struggled to find someone willing to obey orders. It's like how they say in, that the American Civil War was sometimes fought brother against brother. In this case, one of the IDF soldiers on the beach had a brother who was an Irgun fighter on board the Altalena. So, yeah. The Palmach was one of the forces absorbed into the IDF. It had been the Haganah's elite special forces division. And luckily for Ben-Gurion, one of his most accomplished Palmach commanders was in Tel Aviv during a brief leave from the Burma Road on the Jerusalem front. It was Yitzhak Rabin. Rabin agreed to take command of the IDF forces on the beach and obey orders. The army fired shells at the Altalena. 
One or two of them landed, and the ship, with tons of weapons and ammunition on board, began to burn. The wounded ship, like a wounded animal out in the open, simply attracted even more fire, and the navy moved in for the kill. Meanwhile, on the beach, desperate to save their comrades, the Irgun attacked the IDF, and a deadly firefight broke out right smack in the middle of Tel Aviv. With the ship in danger of exploding, the Irgun fighters on board abandoned ship. Menachem Begin insisted on being the last one off the boat, demanding that the wounded be offloaded first onto rescue boats that had been launched from the beach. The firefight on the beach wound down and Yitzhak Rabin ordered the IDF into the water to pull out exhausted and wounded Irgun fighters. Hundreds of Irgun members were immediately arrested. In the chaos, Begin managed to sneak away. Later that night, Begin issued an order to the Irgun. No one, absolutely no one, he said, is to retaliate against the IDF. There will not, he declared with characteristic forcefulness, there will not be a civil war on his watch. It was an unbreakable principle for him that had its roots in his experience during the Holocaust, in which he lost most of his family. The point of Zionism was to save Jewish lives, not to take them. Jews do not attack other Jews, no matter the reason. If you remember back to the sergeant's affair in the summer of 1947, in which Begin ordered the execution of two British sergeants in retaliation for the British executing several Irgun fighters, Begin had referred to that decision as the worst and most cruel of his life. I talked about it in season two. Now, less than a year later, he later said that this decision not to retaliate and thus preventing a civil war was the greatest accomplishment of his life. By the end of the day on June 22nd, after about 48 hours of fighting, 16 Irgun fighters and three IDF soldiers were dead, with many more wounded. In the immediate aftermath of the event, all the Irgun units in the IDF were broken up and the individual soldiers spread out to other units. A while later, Ben-Gurion did the same thing to the Palmach, fully absorbing it into the IDF. For a year, the burned-out hulk of the Altalena sat on the beach in Tel Aviv until the navy towed it out to sea and sank it. It was found again a few years ago, and Israel has made plans to raise it and bring it back to a museum, but I'm not sure if anything has happened yet. For now, as you walk along the Tel Aviv promenade by Bograshov Beach, keep an eye out for a stone memorial in Hebrew and English that gives a brief account of what happened when Israel almost fell into a civil war. Of course, you can't fight an almost civil war without there being lasting consequences. The Altalena affair supercharged Israeli politics right from the beginning of the state. On the one hand, Ben-Gurion emerged victorious. He consolidated his own power and also put to rest any question about the supremacy of state authority. The Altalena solidified the Israel Defense Forces as a single, streamlined, hierarchical military. To Ben-Gurion's supporters, he looked decisive and unwavering in the face of what he called an internal military uprising against the Israeli state. He was correct, they believed, in using force to put down any notion of rebellion in the ranks. In doing so, many believed, he saved the young state from splitting apart. Menachem Begin, in this view, emerges as the bad guy who tried to undermine Ben-Gurion, 
the provisional Israeli government, and the newly created IDF by smuggling in weapons just for his own Irgun followers. But to others, the Altalena affair left an asterisk on the creation of the Israel Defense Forces, a stain that continued to breed mistrust. Ben-Gurion was overly aggressive and betrayed core values of the nation by ordering the IDF to fire on fellow Jews. Begin is the real hero of the Altalena affair in this telling, having stood for his principles and averted a civil war. The attack on the Altalena constituted an extraordinary betrayal. So if you were on the left, Ben-Gurion is the guy who made the tough decisions necessary to forge a unified Israeli state at a moment of great peril from the Arab invasion. And if you were on the right, Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Rabin were murderers who almost tore the new country apart. Begin was the only one with his head screwed on correctly. Still today, you will sometimes hear Israeli politicians accuse one or the other of acting like an Altalena betrayer, either to accuse each other of separatism or of betrayal. Even the current president of Israel, Reuven Rivlin, has said that Ben-Gurion's actions during the affair were unforgivable. It remained a black mark on Yitzhak Rabin's career for decades. And so, one month in, here we are. And just to recap so you can keep up with the timeline a little bit. On May 14, 1948, Israel declared independence. On May 15th, five Arab armies invaded, seizing that first day about 20% of Israel's territory. On May 24th, the Israelis attacked Latrun for the first time, trying to open the road to Jerusalem. On May 26th, the Israel Defense Forces was created. On May 28th, the Jews surrendered the old city of Jerusalem to King Abdullah's Transjordanian forces. On June 10th, the Burma Road opened for business, saving the western Jewish half of Jerusalem. The next day, June 11th, the United Nations truce took effect. And on June 20th through the 22nd, the Altalena affair happened off the coast of Tel Aviv. So, you could say that a lot was going on. But it wasn't even close to being over yet. Just before the truce came into effect, in the early hours before dawn, the American Mickey Marcus, Israel's first general, was walking around headquarters when an 18-year-old Israeli sentry stopped him. Not recognizing the general in the darkness, the young soldier demanded the password. Marcus couldn't remember the Hebrew word and responded in English, which the guard didn't understand, and in the confusion the soldier did what he was trained to do. Fire a warning shot, and then when that didn't work, shoot the intruder. Mickey Marcus was killed. Ben-Gurion believed that the general was assassinated by a rival faction of the IDF that wanted to install a leader who wasn't so close to Ben-Gurion. An investigation did conclude that it was weird for Marcus to have been wandering around in the darkness outside of camp in the middle of a conflict zone, but other than that, no evidence ever emerged of any kind of conspiracy. Marcus's body was returned home to the United States. He is, it seems, the only soldier buried at West Point today who died in service of another country. The United Nations truce lasted just about a month, until early July, when the Israelis and the Arabs resumed fighting each other. This time Israel was in a better position and gradually began taking territory back from the Arabs, and this phase is important because it begins to explain how Israel got more territory than the United Nations had originally given it 
and therefore is part of the explanation of what was happening with respect to the Palestinians. With fighting against the Egyptians in the Negev, the Israeli Air Force enters the picture, and in the middle of the country, Ben-Gurion made a decision about the Palestinians that haunts Israel to this day. That's in next week's episode, and one's upcoming. Right now, you are listening to the song Bring Back Our Boys by God Elbaz and Naftali Galfa. Earlier, I played an IDF song, an official one, the Song of the Companies, as well as a bit of the Irgun's anthem. As always, you can find today's episode and all the rest with lots and lots more content on my website, jewoutonow.com. Sometimes it does take me a little more time to get that content up there, so keep checking back. You can also email me at jewoutonowpodcast.com. I'll do my best to respond eventually. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Lehitraot. See you later. Bye.